All right, well, we're there in uh, John chapter number one, and I'd like you to look down. Uh, well, you know, before we do that, let, let me say this. We've been in this series here. Uh, this is now the third week of this series on the blueprints of a biblical church. And uh, the first week, if you remember, we talked, we're, we're talking about characteristics of what makes a scriptural church. And the first week we talked about the authority of a church, the fact that it's pastor-led, and uh, we talked about deacons and evangelists. We also talked about the autonomy of the local church. Last week, we talked about separation and soul winning, how those two things kind of balance each other out. This week, we're going to finish out by talking about the Bible. And we're also going to just uh, talk about why we're Baptists, why this is a Baptist church, and uh, give you a little bit of Baptist history and some of the Baptist distinctives as to why we've chosen to identify ourselves as Baptists. Uh, if, if you look there at John chapter number one, let's begin with this church, uh, the, the Bible idea. And let me say this, this morning, I'm going to have a lot of information to give you. So I'm breaking, for those of you guys that are in my leadership class and I teach you how to preach, I'm just telling you right now, I'm breaking one of my own rules, all right? One of the rules that I have for preaching is one great truth at a time, and I'm not doing that today, all right? I'm going to give you a lot, and I apologize for that, but I just, we've got other... Things this year we need to get through as far as our series are concerned, and I just couldn't drag this series out longer than that. So we're going to knock it all out right now. So I need you to uh, move quickly, think quickly, listen quickly. John chapter 1, if you look at verse 1, the Bible says this, In the beginning was the Word. In the beginning was the Word. And I, I want to begin by laying a little bit of a foundation when it comes to the Bible. The Bible. A biblical church must have the true Bible. A biblical church must have the true Bible. And, of course, a biblical church needs to have the Bible, but, but here's what you understand. There are false Bibles out there today. There are false versions of, Bible, of the Bible out there. And I want to lay a foundation for you as to why we believe and we take the stand of the Bible that we do. But uh, before I can do that, and I know this is review for some of you, and it's good for you to hear it again. Some of you, maybe you've never heard this before, so I've got to lay a little bit of, of, of the foundation in regard to that. So I want to give you eight statements to kind of help you get to the place where uh, you understand why we believe what we believe. John chapter 1 and verse 1 says, in the beginning was the Word. I want you to notice that, that term, that title, that phrase, that name there, the Word. Now notice what it says, and the Word was with God, okay? The Word was with God. I know this is, I think we've even seen it recently, so I don't want to spend too much time on this, but it says the Word was with God, and then it says the Word was God. So I want you to notice, whoever the Word is, according to the last phrase of this verse, he was God, okay? He's God, but he's not just, he, he was, he's not just God, he's also different than, than God, because notice what it says, and the word was with God, he's with God, and then the word was God, all right? So uh, who is this word? If you look down at verse 14, for sake of time, John 1, 14, the Bible says, and the word was made flesh. The Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. And I want you to remember that. We're going to come back to that later on in the sermon. The Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, the glory as of, notice, the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Now, who is the only begotten of the Father? That's the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember the most famous verse in the Bible, John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. That's Jesus. So, here's what we've learned. According to John 1, 14, the Word was made flesh... The Word was made flesh. Satan doesn't want you to hear this sermon. The Word was made flesh, and the Word is the only begotten of the Father. According to John 1 1, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now keep, uh, keep your place there in John. We're going to come back in that direction, but go with me to the last book in the New Testament, the book of Revelation, Revelation chapter 19. Revelation chapter number 19, and look at verse number 11. Revelation, should be fairly easy to find, last book of the New Testament, Revelation 19, look at verse 11. 
the Word, the Word is the Lord Jesus Christ. According to John 1, the Word was with God, the Word was God, and the Word was made flesh. We beheld His glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Revelation 19 and verse 11 says this. This is about the second coming of Christ. Notice what it says. And I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, and He, now the He there is the Lord Jesus Christ, He that sat upon Him was called Faithful and True. Faithful and true, and in righteousness he doth judge and make war. His eyes were as a flame of fire, on, and on his head were many crowns. And he had a name written that no man knew but he himself. Look at verse 13. And he was clothed with a vesture dipped in blood, and his name, notice, and his name is called the Word of God. Do you see that? Here we see that there is a man. And it's Jesus, you can study that out later, read the whole thing, the whole book of Revelation in its context. It's Jesus coming down, but we're told that His name is the Word of God. John 1, 1 tells us, in the beginning was the Word, that's Jesus. The Word was with God, that's Jesus. The Word was God, that's Jesus. The Word was made flesh, that's Jesus. And we beheld His glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Go to 1 John chapter 5, look at verse 7. If you're there in Revelation... You're going to head backwards. You're going to go past the book of Jude, one chapter, past 3rd, 2nd, and 1st, 3rd, 2nd John into 1st John, all right? So you're going to go from Revelation, you're going past Jude, going backwards, past 3rd, 2nd John into the book of 1st John, 1st John chapter 5, look at verse 7. Like I said, I got a lot to go over today, so I kind of want to try to help you move quickly. 1st John chapter 5 and verse 7 is the verse where we get our common term of the Trinity or belief of the Trinity. Not just the only verse, but probably the best one that, that teaches it. First John 5, 7 says this, For there are three that bear record in heaven. Notice the three. The Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost, and these three are one. Now generally when we think of the Trinity, we think of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, right? But notice in First John 5, 7, he says the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost. Why does it not say the Son? Here's why. Because the Word is the Son. Right? The Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory as of the only begotten of the Father. He who comes on the white horse at the second coming of Christ, the Lord Jesus Christ, is called, His name is called the Word of God. And here's what I need to understand. The Lord Jesus Christ is the Word. The Lord Jesus Christ is the Word. Now, uh, go with me to the book of Ephesians. If you kept your place in John if, from John, you're going to go past the book of Acts, past Romans, into 1st and 2nd Corinthians, Galatians, and Ephesians. So if you're from John, you're going to go Acts, Romans, 1st, 2nd Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 5. All right, so here's what I need to understand. The Word is Jesus Christ. The Word is Jesus Christ. And, and, and I need you to understand this too, and I don't have a lot of time to develop this, so I'm just going to say this. When we say the Word, okay, He's called the Word of God, right? And it's talking about the man coming on the white horse. But all throughout the Bible, you know what else is called the Word of God? The Bible, right? The Bible is the Word of God. And here's what I need you to understand, and, and, and you may have never heard this before, but you, you need to accept it by faith, study it out on your own. When we say that Jesus is the Word, we're not saying that's His name. We're saying He is the Word. We believe at Verity Baptist Church that this, is Jesus Christ. Now, please don't misunderstand what I'm saying. I'm not talking about the physical book. I'm not talking about the paper and the ink and the leather and the binding. I'm talking about these words, these words, the words of God, the word of God 
is Jesus. When the Bible says the word was made flesh, it's talking about the words of God that God spoke. That is the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, here's what you need to understand. Number one, Jesus is the word. Number two, since the Lord Jesus Christ is the word and since the Lord Jesus Christ is the head of the church. And we talked about that last week. We'll see it here in Ephesians 5, but I won't spend too much time on it. Since Jesus is the word and since Jesus is the head of the church, the leader of the church, that, that, what, what we learn from that is that Jesus leads his church through his word. Okay, He is the word and he is the head. Therefore, the Bible, the words of God, must be the head, the authority of the church. That's why around here we'll say this. The Bible is the, uh, is the final authority in all matters of faith and practice. The Bible is the final authority in all matters of faith and practice. Pastor Jimenez is not the final authority in all matters of faith and practice. There is no pope. There is no prophet. There is no board. There is no one in this church that is a final authority but the Word of God. I, as a pastor, have to submit myself to the Bible. I can only preach what the Bible says. And if I ever get up here and start preaching a bunch of stuff and I'm not showing it from the Bible or proving it from the Bible, then then you don't have to listen to it. But the Bible has to be the authority. Are you there in Ephesians 5? Look at verse 23. Ephesians 5 and verse 23. I'm trying to go quickly but not speak too quickly. But I have a tendency to talk fast. Ephesians 5.23. Notice what the Bible says. For the husband is the head of the wife even as or in the same way that Christ is the head of the church. See, Christ is the head of the church and he is the savior of the body. Therefore, as the church is subject or comes under the authority uh, unto Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands and everything. Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it. Now notice verse 26, that he, that's Jesus, that he might sanctify and cleanse it. Sanctify and cleanse what? The church. That he might sanctify and cleanse it. How's he going to do it? With the washing of the water. Don't miss it. By the word. Do you see that? So how does Jesus sanctify and cleanse the church? How does Jesus minister to the church? He does it through his word. Why? Because Jesus is the word. And since Jesus is the Word, and Jesus is the head, then the head of the church is the Word of God, and the, the, the Bible has to be the final authority in all matters of faith and practice. Go to 1 Timothy chapter 3. If you can find the T-books in the New Testament, they're all clustered together. 1 and 2 Thessalonians, 1 and 2 Timothy, Titus. I know this might be brand new for some of you, and it might be more than you can take in in one sermon. I'd encourage you, this sermon will be on a, uh, in an audio MP3 format on our website. It'll be in a video format on our YouTube page. I'd encourage you to go back through and maybe watch it again, take notes. Of course, I'll answer any questions that I can for you. 1 Timothy chapter 3, look at verse 15. Now, do me a favor. When you get to 1 Timothy, put a ribbon or a bookmark or a bulletin or something there because we're going to leave it and we're going to come back to it, okay? So you ought to have your place in two places. You ought to be able to get to John quickly and you ought to be able to get to uh, uh, 1 Timothy chapter number 3. Now, I want you to notice what the Bible says. 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 15. The Bible says, But if I tarry long, this is Paul speaking to Timothy under the inspiration of the Holy Ghost about church ministry. 1 Timothy is a book written to pastors. He says, But if I tarry long, that thou mayest know how thou oughtest to behave thyself in the house of God. And by the way, there's a way you ought to behave yourself in the house of God. And we won't preach about that this morning, but that's a concept in Scripture. Notice what he says. 
But if I tarry long, that thou mayest know how thou oughtest to behave thyself in the house of God. Now notice what he says. Which is the church of the living God. So what is the church of the living God? The church of the living God is the house of God. So he says, which is the church of the living God. Now he's going to tell us what the church of the living God is. Notice what he says. The pillar, the pillar, what's a pillar? We got an example right here. We got a pillar on our pulpit, right? This is a pillar. What does a pillar do? It holds something up. Right now, th- these are just for decoration. But if, if you had a building that was actually held up by pillars, the the roof, the the the, the above structure would be held up by a pillar. Now, notice what the Bible says about uh, uh, what Paul used the illustration here about the church. He said it's the pillar and the ground. What's the ground? The ground is the foundation in which the pillar sits. All right, so here's what he said about the church. He said, notice, 1 Timothy 3.15, But if I tell you long, that thou mayest know how thou oughtest to behave thyself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. Now, keep your place there in 1 Timothy. We're going to come back to it. Go back to John. But before, before you go to John, just do, do me one favor. Look at verse 15. Look at the last verse in verse 15. 1 Timothy 3.15. What's, ver- what's the word? Truth. Let's say it together. Truth. One more time. Truth. What is the church? It, it is the pillar and ground of the truth. All right, go to John 17. John 17. John chapter 17. What does a pillar do? It upholds. What does, a found, what, what does the ground do? It lays the foundation. The church is to be the pillar and ground of the truth. By the way, the word verity means truth. Jesus would often say, verily, verily, I say unto you. What he meant by that is truly, truly, I say unto you. The word verily comes from the same root word that we get the word verity. The word verity means truth. Our church was named Verity Baptist Church. Why? Because we endeavor to be a place where the truth of God's word is preached without uh, uh, not being watered down, not being compromised. We preach the truth. That's why we call our, well, that's why the name of our church is, is Verity. Uh, John 17, verse 17. What is the truth? What is the truth? Now notice, because the church is the pillar and ground of the what? Truth. Well, what is the truth? John 17, 17. Sanctify them through thy truth. Now notice what he says. Thy what? What's it say? Thy word. You see that? Thy word, let's say it together, thy word is truth. Do you see that? So, hold on. The church is the pillar and ground of the what? Truth. John 17, 17, sanctify them through thy truth. Remember Jesus said that he would sanctify and cleanse the church through the word. Here he says, sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. Here's the point I'm trying to make. A church in order to be a scriptural church, must be the pillar and ground of the truth. The pillar and and ground of the word. It must be a place where the word of God is upheld, where the word of God is proclaimed, where the word of God is preached. And it is important, it is important that we have the true word of God. Now keep, uh, keep your place there. You should have your place in 1 Timothy 3. Uh, go with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Now if you're in the book of John, you're going to go past Acts, past, past Romans, into 1 and 2 Corinthians. Go to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Now do me a favor. I'm trying to help you out because we've got to move quickly. When you get to uh, 2 Corinthians, put your place, put a ribbon, a bookmark or something, a finger, something in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. You should have your place in 1 Timothy and in 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 5, here's what you need to understand. Since the Word is the Lord Jesus Christ, right? Jesus is the Word. 
And in the same way that Jesus had to be the perfect lamb, therefore the word must be perfect also. Do you understand what, I'm say- what I just said? Look at 2 Corinthians 5. Look at verse 21. This is Jesus. For he, I'm sorry, this is God the Father. For he, God the Father, hath made him, that's Jesus. For he, God the Father, hath made him, that's Jesus, to be sin for us. Jesus became sin for us. On the cross, he took our sin. He took my sin off of me, and it was placed on Jesus. He took the punishment for my sin. Now notice, for he hath made him to be sin for us. But notice what the Bible says about Jesus, who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. And I don't have time to get into this, but here's the bottom line. I'm a sinner, you're a sinner, and we deserve to die and go to hell. Jesus wanted to pay for our sins, but here's the thing. I can't die for you. You know why? Because I've got my own sins to pay for. You can't pay for me because you've got your own sins to pay for. The only way that this could work is that the word, God became flesh because the only one who's without sin is God. God became flesh. The Word became flesh because He was without sin and He could be the perfect propitiation for our sin. He could take our place. He had no sin, so when He died, He did not die to pay for His own sins. He died to pay for our sins. Okay? Here's the thing. That only works if Jesus is perfect. That only works if Jesus is God. If Jesus is a man like you and I, then we are all condemned to hell. Salvation only works if Jesus is perfect. Jesus had to be perfect. And and there's other references we could look at, but here we are told that he knew no sin. Now, here's the thing. If Jesus is the Word, if Jesus is the Word, then in the same way that Jesus had to be perfect to bring salvation, then the Word has to be perfect also. The Word has to be perfect also. Are you there in 1 Timothy? 1 Timothy? Uh, Okay. Good night. I, I, we're going to so many places. Keep, keep your place there in 2 Corinthians 5. All right. Is, did I tell you that already? Okay. So you got your place in 1 Timothy and 2 Corinthians, right? Okay. Uh, let's see. Where do I want you to go? Go to 1 Peter chapter 1. Now, if you've got your place in 1 Timothy, what you're going to do is you're going to go past 2 Timothy, Titus, Philemon, Hebrews, James, 1 Peter. All right. So if you've got your place in 1 Timothy, continue to keep your place in 1 Timothy. You've got your place in 2 Corinthians and 1 Timothy. Go from 1st, 2nd Timothy, Titus, Philemon, Hebrews, James, 1st Peter. Now notice what the Bible says. 1st Peter chapter 1, verse 23. Notice what it says. 1st Peter 1, 23. Being born again. Now that's how you get saved, right? You're born again. Being born again. Notice, not, not of corruptible seed. What does corruptible mean? It means it's gone bad, right? It means it's dying. It means there's, it's not pure. It's impure. Now, notice what he says. Being born again, not of corruptible seed, but... So he said, you don't get born again from corruptible seed, but you do get born again from incorruptible seed. What's incorruptible mean? It means it's pure. It means it's perfect. It means there's no corruption in it. But of corruptible, notice, by the what? Word. By the word of God, which liveth and abideth forever. According to 1 Peter 1.23, is there an incorruptible seed? Yes. Is there also a corruptible seed? Yes. Which one do you get born again from? The incorruptible seed. See, in the same way that Jesus was perfect, in the same way that Jesus was perfect, the Word of God has to be perfect. Now, how was the Word of God given to us? You're there in 1 Peter chapter 1. Go to 2 Peter chapter 1. 
2 Peter chapter 1. And again, I know we're looking at a lot. And I'm going to give you more than I should, and I apologize for that. But uh, I, I want you to try to grasp as much of this as you can. 2 Peter chapter 1. We believe in the inspiration of Scripture. We believe in the inspiration of Scripture. What that means is, when the Word of God was given to us, it was inspired by God. The word inspired means that God spoke the words. The word inspiration has to do with God's breath, that God literally breathed the words out, that they came from his mouth. Now, notice how the Bible tells us we got the word of God. 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 21. The Bible says this, For the prophecy, 2 Peter chapter 1 verse 21, I want you to see it. For the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man. Today the scoffers will say, oh, that book was written by man. No, no, no. It did not come by the will of man. And I would submit to you that man would not write the Bible. Man writes books like this, you know, uh, positive thinking, you're a good person, there's nothing wrong with you, you just think good thoughts and it'll all work out. Those are the types of books that man writes. This book says you're a sinner and on your way to hell. You need Jesus Christ to save you. Man would not write that. Man would not write the book. Why would David, if David was going to write a life story of himself, you know, or, or allow a life, why, why would we, we have stories in the Bible like, you know, all of the, uh, of the sin and all those things? Here's why. Because God wrote it. That's why. It wasn't written by man. 2 Peter 1.21. For the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man. Notice, but holy men of God spake. You see that word spake? As they were moved by the what? Holy Ghost. Okay, here's what you need to say. Most people think, oh, Paul sat down and wrote the Bible, or Moses sat down and wrote the Bible. And you need to understand, the Bible was written, of course. But before it was written, it was spoken. The Holy Ghost came upon these men, and it wasn't Paul speaking. It wasn't Moses speaking. It wasn't John speaking. It was the Holy Ghost speaking through them. For the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. That is what's called inspiration. Go to 2 Timothy chapter 3. Keep your place there in 2 Timothy, right? You, you got your place in 2 Timothy? First or 2 Timothy? Go to 2 Timothy 3. I'm going to show you this first, but keep, keep your place there because we're going to keep coming back to 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy chapter 3, look at verse 16. All scripture, all scripture is given by inspiration of God. All of it, all of it is written, it's given by God, by holy men of God who spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. That's what inspiration means. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, right? All scripture is given inspiration of God. We believe in the inspiration of scripture. And by the way, almost, I don't think there's any Christian out there who doesn't believe in the inspiration of scripture. Everyone believes that when God originally gave his word you know, to the Hebrew people or in Greek, to the New Testament believers, to the apostles, that it was inspired of God, that it came from God, that God spoke the words. And here's the thing. It was perfect when God gave it. All right. Now go to the book. Keep, keep your, you, ought, you, you ought to be in Second Corinthians and you ought to be in First or Second Timothy. Keep your place there. But go with me to the book of Psalms. If you open your Bible, just right in the center, you'll more than likely fall in the book of Psalms. Just right in the center of the Bible. Psalms. While you turn there, let me read for you another example of inspiration. There's multiple examples in scripture. I'll just give you one. David wrote one of the largest books in the, in the Bible called the book of Psalms. We're about to read, read from it. All right. Now I want you to notice what David said in Second Samuel 23, 1. 
He said this. Now, these be the last words of David. We've been looking at this chapter for the last couple of weeks on Wednesday night. I didn't touch this part because I knew that I was going to deal with it today. So that's why we, we've ignored it on Wednesday nights. But look at what it says. 2 Samuel 23, 1. Now, these be the last words of David. This is what David said. David, the son of Jesse, said, And the man who was raised up on high, the anointed of God of Jacob, and the sweet psalmist of Israel said, I want you to listen to what he said. 2 Samuel 23, 2, if you want to write, jot down this verse. The Spirit of the Lord spake by me, and his word was in my tongue. David, see, David, he knew when he was writing the Psalms that he wasn't just writing nice poetry. He said, the Spirit of the Lord spake by me and his word was in my tongue. David knew, Paul knew that they were penning down the words that were given to them through the Holy Ghost. That is the inspiration of Scripture. Most Christians believe that, but let me say this. Okay, just review. We believe that Jesus is the word. We believe that in the same way that Jesus was perfect, the word must be perfect. We believe that the Word was given to us in a perfect state through the inspiration of the Holy Ghost. All right? Most Christians believe that. But let me tell you where we we, uh, part ways with most believers. We not only believe in the inspiration of Scripture, we believe in the preservation of Scripture. We don't only believe in the inspiration of Scripture, we believe in the preservation of Scripture. Now let me show you one verse, and and there's other ones we can look at, but I only have time for one. Psalm 12, look at verse 6. Psalm 12, verse 6. Psalm 12, 6. Some people pay good money to go to college to learn these things, okay? I'm teaching it to you for free. Psalm 12, look at verse 6. Notice what the Bible says. The words of the Lord. The, Psalm 12, verse 6. I want you to see it. The words of the Lord are pure words, as silver tried in a furnace of earth, purified seven times. Okay? That's the word of God. They're pure words. Meaning they're not corrupted. They're not corruptible. They're, because they came from God, they're inspired. The words of the Lord are pure words, as silver tried in the furnace of earth, purified seven times. Look at verse 7. Thou. Now who's thou? That's the Lord. Notice what the psalmist wrote. This is, the psalmist writing, speaking to God. He says, Thou shalt keep them, O Lord. Thou shalt preserve them from this generation forever. Whose job is it to preserve God's word? It's God's job. It's not man's job. Because today people tell you, well, God gave us the word in an inspired form, but then man began to translate it, and man messed up, and now there's all these mistakes. And let me explain to you why that, that argument is so stupid. I don't think you should use that word. Okay. Well, then don't use it. Here's why that argument is so stupid. <laughs> I don't know how else to say. All Christians today believe that God inspired his word, which means that God used a man, God used a man who's a sinner to pen down his word in a perfect way. But then that same God who, ins- who used a man to give us his inspired word, now he can't continue to use men to preserve his word? I mean, it took God thousands of years to give us the Bible. Why would God spend thousands of years to have His Holy Spirit come upon men like Moses and like Joshua and like, Mo, uh, uh, like David or like Paul and like John just so that a hundred years later it would be corrupted because we messed it all up? How does that make any sense? God is not an imbecile. God, that would be a divine waste of time. If God just get, spent thousands of years giving us His Word, and then allowed translators to mess it all up. 
Look, if God can use a man to pen down his word perfectly, he can also use a man to make sure it's preserved, to make sure it's perfect. And look, the Bible says it's God's job. The Bible says, um, thou shalt keep them, O Lord. Thou shalt preserve them from this generation forever. So we believe, we believe not only in the inspiration of Scripture, but we believe in the preservation of Scripture. Look, when I stand up here and I tell you that this King James Bible that I've got in my hand is God's word, I mean that. I, I'm telling you, I believe this is pure. I believe this is infallible. I believe there is nothing wrong with this word. There is no corruption. It is infallible. It is inerrant. It is the pure word of God. And today people say, well, there's parts of that Bible that I don't like. Well, look, that, that, you got to take that up with God. God's the one who gave us his word. He inspired it. No one disagrees with that. But here's what he also did. He preserved it. He preserved it for us today. We have it today. We believe in the preservation of Scripture. And by the way, let me say this. We believe that because it's inspired and because it's preserved, it's infallible. There's nothing wrong with it. You're not going to find a mistake in this Bible. People, people will often be like, oh, I find a mistake. No, no, no. You, you're the mistake. You don't look. If there's something, if you think you find a, something wrong in the Bible, it's because you don't understand what it's saying. It's because you haven't studied it out. Because everything in this Bible is exactly how God. Now, look, I make mistakes. I say wrong things. You make mistakes. You say wrong things. You're fallible. I'm fallible. This book, infallible. I mean, we, we make mistakes. Just last week, I was, I was thinking about this. I'll, I'll go ahead and confess my sins to you. you know. Uh, last week, I made a statement. I made a statement about our church, and then I had, uh, I had uh, um, I'm just going to call you out, Brother Ray. Sorry. Uh, I had Brother Ray come up to me and said, hey, that wasn't really accurate. But here's the funny thing. When I got in the van, my wife said, hey, that wasn't really accurate. You know, I was like, man, you know, and they were right. Because last week I made the statement that when we first started the church, you know, that no one drove to church and that every, you know, we're praying that people drive to church. But that wasn't really accurate because Brother Ray and Miss Denise were driving to church from Roseville. Miss Cricket wasn't driving to church, but she was just walking to church because she lives down the street from us, right? You know, and like my parents, they, were, they had a ministry that they were dealing with on Sunday mornings, but they would come sometimes to the evening services and they were driving to church, okay? So I made a mistake. Here's what I should have, what I meant to say and what I should have said. Because these were all believers that were already, already saved. What I meant to say was everyone that my wife and I were getting saved and bringing to church, like we were bringing them, we were praying that one day we would have a convert. You know, like a brand new baby, not someone that came from another church that was already saved for years, that we'd have a brand new convert that would drive themselves to church. That's what I meant to say, and I did not say that, but here's why. Because I'm infallible. Because I'm fallible. I'm not infallible. I'm fallible, right? I make mistakes, right? And you do too. But here's the thing. So here, when I tell a story, just realize he could be getting that wrong, right? But when we tell a story from here, it's always right. When we tell you something from the Word of God, it's always true. Do you understand what I'm saying? The Word of God is infallible. Why? Because it is inspired. The Word of God is infallible. Why? Because it is preserved. And, and, and you know, when Brother Ray and my wife told me that, they didn't say that with a bad attitude. You know, they were joking. You know, they were just like, hey, you know, we drove. I was like, yeah, you're right. You did drive. So, infallible, inspired, preserved. Let me say this. Seventh statement. Seventh statement. We got to move quickly. Go back to 2 Corinthians chapter 2. Since, since the Word of God is the head of the church. 
Since it is so important to us because it brings us salvation, it brings us sanctification, it is the pillar and ground, uh, the church is supposed to be the pillar and ground of the truth, of the word of God. Since it is so important to us, Satan has attacked the word of God. There's an attack today on the word of God. And let me say this, that attack has been there since the beginning. Second, uh, go to 2 Corinthians 2.17. Notice what the Bible says. 2 Corinthians 2.17. This is during the time of the New Testament. Notice what Paul said. Paul is a man that wrote most of the New Testament. And notice what he said. He said, for we are not as many which corrupt the word of God. You know what that means? While Paul was still penning most of the New Testament, before the New Testament was even completed, there was already people out there who were corrupting the word of God. Who were taking the writings of Paul and changing them. Taking the writings of Paul and removing things. Even during the, before the New Testament was penned, before it was finished, Paul said, there are many which corrupt the word of God. And, and, by, the, and by the way, let me say this. All the way back to the Garden of Eden, the devil was corrupting the word of God. Remember, the, the first, one of the first things he says to Eve, he says, hath God said... God said that you should not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And what does he do? He says, he questions it. Did God really say that? And then he changes it. God didn't say that. That's not what he... He said, thou shalt not surely die. Look, from the very beginning, the devil has been attacking, has been corrupting, has been changing the word of God. Today, there is an attack on the word of God because it is so important. And have you noticed that there's hundreds of different translations out there? So here's a question. How do you know which one's right? At Verity Baptist Church, we believe that the King James Bible is the inspired and preserved and infallible Word of God in the English language today. That's what we believe. We don't, we don't use, we don't teach, we don't preach out of any other version but the King James Version Bible. We believe this is God's preserved Word of God in the English language. I don't think that, you know, we have to go down to Mexico and make them learn English. Okay? They can, people can have the inspired, preserved word of God in many languages. It can be in Spanish. It can be in different languages. It's in Greek. You know, it's in different languages. But in English, we believe the King James Bible is the word of God. Now you say, well, how did you come, ac- how, how did you come across that? Well, here's what you need to understand, okay? Now I'm going to have Brother Oliver help me. I asked him to come up and um, set up some things here because we're, we're going we're gonna to look at a few verses this morning. And, but here's what I want you to understand. The best way, someone said this, the best way to see if a stick is crooked, is to put it up against a stick that's straight. Right? You wanna, if you want to measure whether something's crooked, just put it against something that's straight. And you'll be able to tell. And here's the thing. If you're not sure which one is straight or which one's crooked, just put them next to each other and it'll be easier to figure them out. I used to work at, at a, a financial institution where we had, you know, we, we had, we, we, every day we'd have like $10,000, $20,000 delivered uh, to our our uh, location there, and we were often having people bring in counterfeit money. And when they trained us, when they trained us, and I've heard other people say this also, but I, this is my own experience. When they trained us on how to deal with counterfeit money, they never had us look at counterfeit money. And here's the reason why. You can't get trained on counterfeit money because it changes every day. Just because you see one bill that's counterfeit, that doesn't mean the next bill is going to be the same thing. So here's what they did. They just had us handle the real thing. They just had us count you know, thousands of dollars worth of real money. So we get used to how it felt. So we get used to how it looked. And of course, there was different signs and things you look for and different emblems or whatever. So then that way, when the fake thing came in, it was easy to spot it because you were so used to seeing the real thing. Okay? You want to know if a stick is straight? 
You want to know if a stick is crooked? Just lay it next to a straight stick. You want to know if a stick is straight? Lay it next to a crooked stick. It'll, it'll become real, real clear. If, you, if I was to take one of those fake diamonds, what are those things called? Cubic zirconiums? If I was to take a fake diamond and put it in a bucket with hundreds of other real diamonds, and I took it to a jeweler and said, find me the fake one, he'd be able to find it. Because it'd be easy to compare what's fake next to what's real. Does that make sense? So here's what we're going to do this morning. We're going to just compare the Word of God, the King James Bible, to other versions of the Bible. And I, I just want you, I want you to tell me which one's straight and which one's crooked. All right? Now, we could do this for hours. There are so many passages we could look at, but I'm not going to do that because I've got something else I've got to cover this morning still. All right? So I'm just going to give you three examples. Three examples this morning in regards to just three examples of, uh, and you tell me which one's corrupted and which one's incorrupted. All right. Now, the first example we're going to look at uh, today, I'm going to have Brother Oliver. I'm going to read for you out of the King James Bible. I'm going to have Brother Oliver read for you out of the New International Version, the NIV, which is the most popular version in America today. The English Standard Version, which I think is the third, uh, you know, most popular version in America today. And then the New American Standard, which is a very popular version today. Now, now I'm going to read out of Philippians chapter 2 and verse 6 out of the King James Bible. And if you want to turn there, you go for it. Philippians chapter 2, verse 6 out of the King James Bible. Here's what the King James Bible says. Who, talking about Jesus, who, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God. Okay? So the Bible says that Jesus, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery. He did not think it was robbery. He was not stealing from God when he made himself equal with God. Okay? Why is that? Because Jesus is God. Do you understand that? The word was with God. The word was God. So it wasn't wrong for Jesus to make himself equal with God. Brother Oliver, please read Philippians 2.6 out of the New International Version. Philippians 2.6 in the NIV reads, Who being in very nature... God did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. Now, hold on a second. Do those two verses say the same thing? One said he thought it not robbery to be equal with God, meaning he thought it was okay to make himself equal with God. The NIV says, just read from, did not consider. Did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. The NIV is teaching that Jesus did not think that he could grasp equality with God. You understand what they just taught? Here's what they just said. Jesus isn't God. Here's what, they just attacked the doctrine of the deity of Christ. Now, here's the thing. If Jesus isn't God, then we're all dying and going to hell. If Jesus isn't God, then guess what he was? A man. Then he was a sinner just like you and I. The King James says he thought it not robbery to be equal with God. That he didn't think there was anything wrong to make himself equal with God. Why? Because he was God. The New International Version says, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. Please read the same verse from the English Standard Version. Philippians 2.6 in the ESV reads, Who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Okay, so again, the English Standard Version says, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped about Jesus. So according to the English Standard Version, is Jesus God? No. No, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. According to the King James Bible, is Jesus God? Yeah, he thought it to not robbery to be equal with God. Please read Philippians 2.6 from the New American Standard Version. Philippians 2.6 in the NASB reads, Who, although he existed in the form of God, 
did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. Notice these things. They all say the same thing. The New American Standard said he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. The King James said, thought it not robbery to be equal with God. One is teaching Jesus is God. The other three are teaching Jesus is not God. Here's a question I have for you. Which one's straight? Which one's crooked? Look, we believe in the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ. We believe that he's God in the flesh. The word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. One teaches... Now look, don't you think Satan would have an agenda to, to create Bibles that attack the deity of Christ? The New International says he did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. The English Standard Version says he did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped. The New American Standard said he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. They are all teaching anti. They are all teaching against the deity of Christ. The King James Bible teaching that the, teaches the deity of Christ, that he thought it not robbery to make himself equal with God. He said there's nothing wrong with him becoming equal with God. Let me show you another example about the deity of Christ, okay? First uh, Timothy chapter 3. If you kept your place there, you're, you're welcome to turn there. First Timothy 3.16 says this. First Timothy 3.16 in the King James Bible says, And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. Now I want you to notice what the King James says. It says, God was manifest in the flesh. The Bible says that Satan is the, prince, is the prince and the power of the air. He's like messing with us right now because he doesn't want me to expose him. <laughs> okay, notice what it says. God was manifest in the flesh. Okay, now isn't that, doesn't that tie in with John 1.1? In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. All things were made by Him, without Him was not anything made that was made. The Word was made flesh. Right? The Word was with God. The Word was God. The Word was made flesh. First Timothy 2 16. God was manifest in the flesh, justified in the Spirit, seen of angels, preached unto the Gentiles, believed on the world, received unto glory. Please read the same verse from the New International Version. First Timothy 3 16 in the NIV says, Beyond all question, the mystery of godliness is great. He appeared in a body, was vindicated by the Spirit, was seen by angels, was preached among the nations was believed on in the world, was taken up in glory. Now, I don't know if you caught that. King James says God was manifest in flesh. What did the NIV say? It says, wait, just read that one phrase. He appeared in a body. He appeared in a body. Okay, here's a question I have. Who appeared in a body? He could be anybody. Hey, newsflash, I appeared in a body. Oliver appeared in a body. That doesn't mean anything. But why, why would a Bible choose to take a verse that teaches the deity of Christ, that God was manifest in the flesh, and then change it to, no, it just he appeared in flesh. Why? Because they're attacking the deity of Christ. Please read the same verse from the English Standard Version. 1 Timothy 3.16 in the ESV reads, Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh. You can, you can just stop right there. Again. He was manifest in flesh. What's the King James say? God was manifest in flesh. Please read it from the New American Standard. First Timothy 3.16 in the NASB reads, By common confession, great is the mystery of godliness. He who was revealed in the flesh. And you can just stop right there. But again, he was revealed in the flesh. He was manifest in flesh. He appeared in a body. The King James, God was manifest in flesh. Just an attack on the deity of Christ. So here's the question I have for you. Which one's straight and which one's crooked? Which one's pure and which one's corrupt? Okay, let me give you one more example. We can spend all day doing this, but i got to cover other things. Acts chapter number 8. Acts chapter number 8. Now, I'm going to read for you from the King James Bible, all right? Acts chapter number 8, verse number 36. Acts chapter 8, verse 36 says this. And as they went on their way, they came unto a certain water. And the eunuch said, See, here is water. What doth hinder me baptized? Okay, verse 36. 
the guy asks, what's hindering me? What's stopping me from getting baptized? Verse 37, Acts 8, 37 says, And Philip said, If thou believest with all thine heart, thou mayest. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Amen. Look at verse 38. And he commanded the chariot to stand still, and they went down both into the water, both Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. So in, in Acts chapter 8, verse 36, 37, 38, the Bible says that in verse 36, he asked, the eunuch asked, What doth hinder me to be baptized? He's told, if you believe, you can. He says, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. So he confessed it with his mouth. He got saved. Verse 38, they baptized him. Please, please read the same passage from the uh, New International Version. Acts 8.36 in the NIV reads, As they traveled along the road, they came to some certain water. And the eunuch said, Look, here is water. Why shouldn't I be baptized? Verse 38, And he gave orders to stop the chariot. Then both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water, and Philip baptized him. Now, hold on a second. I don't know if you got this. Brother Oliver, you read verse 36, right? Yeah. And then you read verse 38. Right. Why did you not read verse 37? It's not there. Because it's not there. Because it's been removed. And here's, here's what's funny about the New International Version. They don't even try to cover up. They go, they put, because you know your Bible has the reference of the verse. Is there a number 36 next to verse 36? Yes. Is there a number 38 next to verse 38? Yes. They just, just, just omit it. Okay, what did they omit? Let me read it for you. The verse that's missing on the NIV. And Philip said, If thou believest with all thine heart, thou mayest. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Why do you think they would remove that verse? It seems to me like the NIV has a problem with Jesus. It seems to me like they don't like Jesus. Because the NIV is like, no, he's not equal with God. No, God was not manifest in the flesh. And now when there's a clear verse that says, you must believe on Jesus Christ to be saved before you can be baptized, you must believe on Christ, they just remove the verse. Please read the same passage from the English Standard Version. Acts 8.36 in the ESV reads, And as they were going along the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, see, here's water. What prevents me from being baptized? Verse 38, And he commanded the chariot to stop. And they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. Again, Brother Oliver, why did you not read verse 37? It's not there. Because it's not there. Is, does it say ver number 36 next to verse 36? Yes. Does it say number 38 next to verse 38? Yes. And it's just the, the verse is just missing in, in the middle. It's just gone. They omitted it. The, new, the English Standard Version. And look, I, we could do this all day. And one day I will. One day we'll spend all a whole sermon just going through these references. But here's the point I'm trying to make to you. One is right, one is wrong. So how can you, how do you know the King James? You just put it next to the other one and you can tell which one is the cubic zirconium and which one's the real thing. You just, put it, you just put them side by side and you can figure out this one's corrupted, this one's pure. This one's a counterfeit, this is the real thing. And look, there's other references. I could give you so many references and if you want, I'll, I'll print you out a list of all sorts of references you can look up and compare for yourself in your NIV in the privacy of your home. I don't, I, of your own home. I don't have time to, to go through all of that. But um, let, me say, uh, let me say this. We believe, we believe in the inspiration and preservation and inerrancy of the King James Version of the Bible. Now look, if you come in here and you say, well, I don't believe that and I think it's the NIV and I think whatever, we're not mad at you. We don't care. But you're not going to stand behind this pulpit and preach out of the NIV. We'll only allow the NIV if you're going to show us some mistakes out of it. You know, but, but, but here's the thing. Our church, our position is, it matters what Bible you preach out of. It matters what Bible you teach out of. Because the whole point of a church is to be the pillar and ground of the truth. Now, when, when the Bible is telling you that Jesus isn't God, is that a truth or is that a lie? I will submit to you today that every church that preaches out of the NIV is the pillar and ground of a lie. 
And they're telling you that you don't, because here's the implication. When you're reading through Acts 8, and the guy says, what does Henry baptize? And then the next verse, they're baptizing him. What, what do you learn from that? Any, you can just baptize for any reason. Do you have to believe in Jesus? No, just get baptized. That's why they baptize babies. Do babies confess to Jesus Christ? No, but the NIV doesn't tell you you have to do that. The American Standard doesn't tell you you have to do that. And churches that teach out of those versions are the pillar and ground of a lie. Because the King James Bible is the true word of God. And look, if this offends you, you don't like it, I just encourage you to study it out. Now, we're going to shift gears, all right? Because I have to cover two subjects today. We're talking about the Bible. We're done with that. I want to talk to you just real briefly about being a Baptist. Baptist distinctives. Why are we Baptists today? Now, what we're going to do is I'm going to have the ushers go through and hand out a bookmark. Everybody in church is going to get a bookmark today. That, uh, that, and, and, and I'm going to go through the bookmark and show you uh, what, it, what that is. And while, while they pass that out, we're also going to set up a whiteboard because I've got some things I want to show you on the whiteboard. But while they do that, guys, go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. If you can, please. Pass them out. Everybody gets a bookmark today. Let's make sure everybody gets a bookmark. If you can read, get a bookmark. All right. Now, while we do, do that, let me say this. If you're not, if you're still not not sure about the King James Bible, you're not sure about the, 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 the Word of God, you know, our church took part in helping make a documentary called New World Order Bible Versions. This is a documentary. It's very well made. It's not boring. This documentary basically explains in more detail what I attempted to explain today in about 40, 45 minutes, okay? If you've not watched this, we want to give this to you as a gift today, okay? As you walk out of the church building today, there's a black table where the clipboards are. You'll find a bunch of these New World War Bible We'll give them to you for free. Go home and watch it. Go home and take notes because it explains in detail everything we talked about today in regards to the King James Bible, all right? So if you, if you haven't watched it or if you've watched it but you just want another one, you want to give it to a friend, you're so not sure about the King James Bible, please grab one of these Bible versions, uh, oh, one of these Bible versions, one of these DVDs on your way out, New World Order Bible versions. It explains what, the, what, what we believe about this and it, and it goes into detail. Now, what I want to do for the rest of today, if it's okay with you, and I'm not asking so we're just going to do it anyway, is to, I want to talk to you about Baptist history and I want to talk to you about Baptist distinctives. But before I can explain to you the Baptist distinctives, I have to explain to you a little bit of Baptist history. Now, let me say this. Baptist history is a subject that we could go into for hours. I'm not going to do that. I'm going to try to, as briefly as I can today, um, go through this idea of, of, of who we are as Baptist people. But, uh, so I'm going to try to explain this to you, and then we're going to go through some Baptist uh, distinctives, and, and we'll, be, we'll, we'll be done. I'll try not to take too long, but look, if, this, is, this is just the truth, all right? This is the Word of God, and um, the history, is, some of it's the Word of God, some of it's just history, but we're going to tie it into the Word of God here in a minute. If you got to go, go, all right? But I want to uh, explain to you some of these things, all right? So here's what I'm going to do. Here's a line. This is a timeline, okay? This line represents a movement of believers that was started by none other than the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord Jesus Christ came to this earth, died for our sins, and the Bible says that he, he said, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. He started a movement of whatever you want to call it, believers, the local New Testament church, uh, a, a church movement, and, and th this line represents that uh, movement. Now, what I want you to understand is this. During, I'm going to fall off here. During the initial, the first initial part of, of this church movement that the Lord Jesus Christ started, for the first 34, 35 years, all right? Good night. Okay, from about 30 A.D., right? 
Jesus started his ministry when he was 30 years old. The, the clock begins at his birth. So around 30 A.D. to about, uh, let's see, 64 A.D., these believers were persecuted, were under persecution, and I'm sorry about my handwriting, or I'm, you should have sat up front if you can't see it, but they were persecuted by the Jews. Now, if that offends you, you haven't read the Bible. Because if you read your New Testament, you'll find that the people, Paul is going all over the world, and who keeps throwing him in prison? Who keeps stoning him? Who keeps following him around and protesting against him, rallying up the Gentiles? It's the Jews. For the first 30, 34, 35 years of this movement, there was a persecution coming from the Jews anti-Christianity. Now, around 70 A.D., the Jews were basically destroyed by the Roman Empire and were no longer in a position to persecute believers. And by the way, let me say this. During this time, this group of people began to be called Christians. I won't, I won't, uh, I won't you don't have to turn there, but let me read for you from, uh, I got the reference up here. Acts 11.26 says, And the disciples were called Christians first in Antioch. Acts 11. 26 tells us that the disciples were called Christians first in Antioch. And by the way, they were, I believe they were called Christians by their persecutors. It was a mocking title because the word Christian means little Christ. And they were saying, these people, they're like a bunch of little Christ. They're Christians. And of course, the name just stuck on. And they were called Christians. They were persecuted by the Jews. 70 AD, a man by the name of Titus, he was a Roman general who later became a Roman Empire, destroyed the temple, the Jewish temple in Jerusalem. All right. Now, this is important for, for several reasons, and I don't have time to get into all of it, but let me say this. The reason that this is, is important, that the temple was destroyed, is because the temple being destroyed was actually predicted by Christ. Christ, in the New Testament, predicted that the temple would be destroyed. And 35 years later, it was. That's a big deal. Now, here's the thing. The temple's destruction is not found in the New Testament at all. Okay? It's not referred to. Most people believe, and I would agree with this, that the New Testament was completed by... Oh, good night. I need one of these homeschoolers to come up here and... Most people believe that the New... Oh, that is terrible. Sorry. New Testament completion. Most people believe, and I agree, that the New Testament was probably completed by 70 AD. And here's why. If Paul or John was still writing New Testament scriptures after 70 AD, they probably would have mentioned the destruction of the temple. Because it's such a big deal that Christ himself, not a prophet, Jesus from his own mouth, predicted the destruction of the temple. The fact that the destruction of the temple is not mentioned in the New Testament shows us that probably, and I'm not dogmatic on it, but probably the New Testament was completed before 70 AD. Now that's important for other reasons, and I'm not going to get into all the details of it, but I want you to understand this. The New Testament scriptures that we have are not legends that were handed down to us over a period of thousands of years. Okay, They were written by eyewitnesses 
within the lifetime of those witnesses. That's important to understand. And again, that's a whole other sermon for another day. But here's what I want you to understand. The New Testament was more than likely completed before 70 AD, probably around 64 AD. From 30 AD, the time of the ministry of Christ, the ascension of Christ, to 64 AD, there was Jewish persecution. Now here's what I want you to understand about that, all right? Let me grab this color. During this time of the completion of the New Testament, I'm not going to give myself enough room. During this time of the completion of the New Testament, there was already false scriptures being written, false gospels being preached, false doctrines being taught. Now, I'm not, you don't have to turn there. If you want to, you can. Let me just read for you. 2 Corinthians 2.17, we already saw it. Paul wrote, For we are not as many who corrupt the Word of God. Already during the time of Paul's writing the New Testament, there was people corrupting the Word of God. Paul also wrote to the church in Galatia. Galatians 1, 6-7 says, I marvel that ye are so soon removed from him that called you out of, his, uh, out of the grace of Christ unto another gospel, which is not another, but there be some that trouble you and would pervert the gospel of Christ. The fact that Paul is writing to the, the church in Galatia, talking about the fact that there are people perverting the gospel of Christ, proves that during this time there was already false scriptures, false gospels being preached, false doctrines, false believers. You understand? Everybody with me up to this point? Now, after, the, after around 64 AD, 70 AD, during the temple de, after the temple destruction, the Jews basically quit persecuting believers, but there was a new persecution which came from the Roman Empire. Now, remember, the Roman Empire rules the world at this time. And by the way, Daniel predicted this predicted that the Roman Empire would persecute, uh, would, would persecute believers. During the, during the time of the Roman Empire, the Roman Empire began to persecute believers. And this took place, history tells us, and we're not dogmatic on any of this, we're only dogmatic on what the Bible says, but history tells us that this took place from between 64 AD to about 312 AD. 64 AD, 312 AD is while the persecution of the Roman Empire to God's people, to believers, happened. Now, something very uh, interesting happened in 313 AD. Here's what happened. The Roman Empire, for all of these hundreds of years, had been persecuting believers. When the Jews were persecuting Christians, the Christian movement, religion, group just, just grew. Whenever persecution happens, it always uh, allows uh, things to grow. You know, the, the, the God's people get excited during persecution. They, they do more during persecution. During the Roman Empire, there was 10 consecutive Roman persecutions that came to, the, to, the, to the Christianity, and they didn't, kill, they didn't kill off Christianity. It just grew. It just expanded. There was more people being saved. More churches started. More uh, the gospels being preached. 313 A.D., there comes a Roman Empire by the name of Constantine the Great. Now, Constantine the Great, the story goes, and I, don't, I think I'm sure it's either made up or it was a devil that appeared to him, is that he saw a vision. And in the vision, 
there's all sorts of different aspects of the story, but in the vision, they say, they say that he saw a cross with a banner, it was on fire, and there was a term on there that says, by this symbol ye shall conquer. And he basically took the attitude that the Roman Empire was not snuffing out Christianity. They were not killing it off. They were just making it more popular. So he took this idea that if you can't beat them, join them. And he, quote-unquote, converted to Christianity, and he didn't, but he said he did, and he held a council in which he invited believers to meet with him because he wanted to create a state church. He wanted to create a church that would be a church for the entire uh, Roman Empire, and he invited believers to come and help him create that, that church. Now, here's the thing. New Testament believers that are saved, they know you can't legislate Christianity. And they're against the government being in control of a church. So guess what? These people didn't show up to that meeting. But guess who did? A bunch of false doctrine. A bunch of false gospel. A bunch of false scriptures believers showed up to this meeting. And this meeting basically created a, the first universal church in history. Now keep in mind, the... The Roman Empire rules the world. This became the state church of the Roman Empire. They created what became known as the Roman Universal Church. Now, we talked about it in the first sermon in this series. Is there a such thing as a universal church? No. They're local assemblies. But they created the Roman Universal Church, which was the church of the entire world because it was a church of the Roman Empire who ruled the world. Now, in Rome, they spoke Latin. The Latin word for universal is Catholic. They created what is now known as the Roman Catholic Church. And let me tell you something. The Roman Catholic Church teaches a bunch of false doctrines. They teach that salvation is by works. They teach that you have to get baptized to be saved. They teach that Jesus is not the head of the church, the Pope is. There's no biblical authority. Their authority comes from the Pope and, and the traditions of their church. But that's what they created. Now, again, I'm, just, I'm, I'm, I'm teaching you this because... You need to understand this to understand who we are as Baptists. This basically went on for years and years and years and years and years. And during 1517 A.D., a man by the name of Martin Luther basically created a new movement which became to be known as the Protestant Reformation. Good night. That's why we don't hand out my notes. The Protestant Reformation. Okay? Now, it wasn't just Martin Luther. Another famous Protestant was John Calvin. Another famous Protestant was John Knox. And there's lots of other famous Protestants that you've probably never heard of. But there was all sorts of them. Now, here's what I want you to understand. The reason they're called Protestants is because they were protesting the Roman Catholic Church. They were saying the Roman Catholic Church is teaching false doctrines, and we're going to protest the Roman Catholic Church. And here's what I want you to understand. These people did not come from here. They came from here. John Calvin, Martin Luther were Catholic priests, protested the Roman Catholic Church. 
and basically created their own Protestant churches known as Presbyterians, known as Lutherans, known as all sorts of different religions that came out of Catholicism. Now here's what I want you to understand. During this time, Jews persecuted Christians. During this time, the Roman Empire persecuted Christians. During this time, which is known in history as the Dark Ages, the Catholic Church persecuted Christians. When the Protestant Reformation came along, the Catholic Church and Protestants persecuted these people. And here's what I want you to understand. All throughout history, there have been a group of people that got their faith and doctrines from the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave it to the apostles, who gave it to Paul, who gave it to another Christian, who gave it to another Christian, who gave it to another Christian, who gave it to another Christian. They were first called Christians by their persecutors. Throughout history, they were known as different names. But these Christians believed in certain things. Number one, they believed in the, in the authority of Scripture that the Bible was the authority, and that therefore no pope or government should be their authority. They believed in the autonomy of the local church, that the local church should be self-governing, and that it should never come under the authority of a government or a denomination. They believed in the priesthood of the believer, that the Bible says that there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, and that I did not need to go to a priest in order to have access to God, that I could have access to God on my own through the Holy Spirit and through the Lord Jesus Christ. They believed in the inspiration and preservation of Scripture, that the Bible was infallible, and that they did not need a priest to explain it to them or to teach them what it really meant. They believed in separation, that they did not have to go and join themselves with the Roman Empire in order to be a legit church. They believed in the office set forth in scripture of a pastor and a deacon and an evangelist and they did not believe that they needed a pope or a bishop or a board of directors or anything to come over them they believed in soul winning these were evangelistic believers and guess what these evangelistic believers began to do these believers began to get these people saved and these people began to get these people saved and when Catholics started getting saved and Protestants got, started getting saved and they started joining themselves with these believers, guess what they started doing? They started baptizing them. Because when a Catholic gets saved and a Protestant gets saved and when they truly believe on Christ, then the first thing that they're taught is, hey, your baptism was unscriptural because you were baptized as a baby. And the Bible teaches that baptism in Acts 8, 36, 37, and 38 comes after salvation. So they began to re-baptize these new converts. And I want you to understand, it wasn't that baptism was just a big deal to them. It wasn't about baptism, it was about salvation. It was about the fact that you weren't saved when you were baptized as a baby. That you weren't saved when you were uh, trusting in your works to save you. And now that you are saved, you need to get baptized. Here's what you need to understand. When these people got baptized, it was about identifying with the proper movement of church. When they got baptized, they were saying, I was once a Catholic, I was once a Protestant, but now I am identifying myself with these people. Because remember last week, we talked about the fact that baptism identifies you with Christ and with His people. And here's what you need to understand. When these people got baptized, they were signing their own death warrants. It was illegal. We are told, and again, it's a historical fact and it could be off, but we are told that 50 million believers were killed by, you ever heard of Bloody Mary? 
the Catholic queen that killed a bunch of believers. Why? Because they were getting rebaptized. It wasn't about baptism. They were getting saved and getting scripturally baptized. They were getting saved and they were identifying themselves with these people. These people were called many different names. But eventually, in the same way that they were called Christians in a mocking form from their persecutors, these people began to be called a name in a mocking form. They were called Anabaptists. The word Anna means re. They were marked, mocked. You're one of those re-baptizers. You're one of those people that thinks you, someone has to get re-baptized because the Roman Catholic Church is a heretical church because Protestants are just Catholic light. Because Protestants still believe in works, they just hide it better. You're one of those re-baptizers. You're one of those Anabaptists. And this group began to be called that. And eventually, the term Anna was dropped and they were just called Baptists. Here's what I want you to understand. We are not Protestants. Baptists are not Protestants. Don't ever let anybody tell you, oh, you're a Protestant. No, no. Protestants came out of the Roman Catholic Church. Our people were never part of the Roman Catholic Church. In fact, they rejected it back when Constantine the Great. And I'm not telling you that all throughout history they were called Baptists. I'm just telling you, this people eventually became known to be called Baptists. And here's what I believe. I believe that if salvation was a chain, if salvation was a chain that I hooked myself up to, and I was able to hook myself up to a a physical chain, and I pulled back on that chain of salvation, it would take me to my father, who gave me the gospel as a young child and got me saved. And if I was to pull that chain back, It would take me to a Baptist missionary who got my father saved in Venezuela many years ago. And if I was to pull that chain back, it would take me to the person that got that guy saved. And it would take me to the person that got that guy saved. And I believe if we pull that chain back far enough, it'll take us. I believe if I shook that chain, it would shake on the shores of Galilee. Because the movement of Christianity started with the Lord Jesus Christ. And there's always been a group of people that believed in the autonomy of the local church, that believed in the priesthood of the believer, that believed salvation by grace through faith, that believed that baptism was after salvation, that believed in the inspiration and preservation of Scripture. We're not these people. We're not these people. And by the way, that's why it matters to me. That's why I fight for the name Baptist. Today you got people saying, ah, just take the name Baptist off or just don't identify. No, no, it matters to me. It means something. It means something to be a Baptist. I'm a Baptist. People died for that name. People died to be baptized. That's why I don't feel that bad for some of you say, well, I can't be baptized. I'm, I'm kind of shy. These people died to get baptized. I think you can get over your little shyness. I think you can get over, you know, they, they, they believe in this, in this idea of Christianity so far. We handed you a bookmark. Do you have it? In your little bookmark, We've got what are commonly known as the Baptist distinctives. What, what was done, and I didn't do this, this was made up. My pastor taught me this when I was 14 years old, and I'm teaching it to you today. The word Baptist can be used as an acronym, and there are Baptist distinctives. These are things that we believe as Baptists that differentiate us from everyone else. The B stands for biblical authority. Not a pope, but the word of God. The A stands for the autonomy of the local church. That we're not part of a denomination. We're not part of a government system. And by the way, let me say this. One day, this guy is going to be called the Antichrist. And he's going to tell people, come join me in a universal church. And most of these people are going to join that. But in the end times, there will still be a group of people 
Who will say, no, you can't join the government system. No, there's the autonomy of local church. And I would submit to you that they're probably going to be Baptists. The A stands for the autonomy of the local church. The P stands for priesthood of the believer. We don't need a pope. We don't need a priest. We have access to God through the Lord Jesus Christ. The I stands for the inspiration and preservation of Scripture, what we just talked about, that we believe that the Word of God is inspired, that all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. They believed in separation. You see the separation here? Not just for the church, but in their personal lifestyle. To be called out from the world. They believed in the I put on here three offices. Other people say two offices. Uh, in the offices that the Bible gives us, the pastor, the deacon, and the evangelist. That the authority structure is within the self-governing body of the church. And of course, since we're more than one Baptist here today, the last S there they, stands for soul winning, personal and as a church. They believe that their job was to evangelize the world. I hope this makes sense to you. This is who we are. This is where we came from. This is why we're not taking the name Baptist off the sign. This is why I'm, I'm not sending, I'm not laying my hands on a man and ordaining him to go start anything than a Baptist church. Because this is who we are. And hopefully you understand now that not all churches are created equal. And there are biblical doctrines, biblical characteristics that make us a biblical church. We're not perfect. But we're doing our best, we're doing our best to be able to pattern ourselves after the Word of God. To keep those distinctives that make us biblicists. Because like I told you before, when the Bible is your boss, you're a Baptist. Let's bow our heads and have a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for your Word. Thank you for allowing us to be able to communicate truth. Lord, I pray that... I know we went through a lot today. I know we went through a lot and we probably shouldn't have. But Lord, I pray that there would be people here today that would learn these doctrines, learn these beliefs, and stand for them. Lord, I pray that you would raise up a generation of young people that would say, I'm a Baptist. The Bible is my authority. I have access to God through the Lord Jesus Christ. I don't need any priest. I'm going to live a separated life. I'm going to be a soul winner. Father, we love you. Thank you for your word. In your precious name I pray. Amen.